Well, James Cameron was not exactly known, or isn't exactly known, for the depth of dialogue that he brings to a film. But he does tell a good story. If you're not familiar with this clip, uh, this is from the original Terminator film. Sorry if we spoiled the ending for you, but it was made in 1984. So, um, and just as an aside, before we jump in, if you haven't recently watched a movie from the 80s, let me encourage you to do so. It's entertaining. It's very fun. Um, so this is, of course, the end of the, the first Terminator movie, and it's kind of the big reveal. If you're not familiar with the storyline, briefly, uh, it's, it's what you might expect. Uh, in the future, robots take over the world. Uh, humans rebel. The leader of the rebellion is a guy named John Connor. In order to squelch the rebellion, the robots figure out a way to send a cyborg back in time to murder John's mother, Sarah. They don't exactly know who the father is, but um, <coughs> we find out in this scene that it's actually the the military, the soldier that they sent back to guard Sarah Connor, who was friends with John Connor, becomes his father. And so in this kind of sudden twist at the end, we realize that the person who ultimately leads these people to their freedom was birthed out of this moment of tragedy and chaos, where it seemed like they were most at risk of being destroyed. It was out of that that their salvation came. Again, it's, it's a compelling story, even if the acting is meh. Well, if you're new with us, my name's Tim Deal. I'm one of the pastors here. And we are wrapping up a four-week series that we've been in this kind of short book of Ruth that we find in the Old Testament. We've been calling this series Unseen because even as we go through the book and we watch it, how it begins in tragedy and kind of ultimately ends in triumph, Kind of quietly behind the scenes, there's this sense that God is at work in ways that are unseen, kind of bringing about his redemptive purposes, even when it seems like the the least likely of all outcomes. And so kind of in summary, if if you're just joining us, we begin with this this tragic situation in which Ruth, this Moabite woman, this pagan outsider, loses her husband, her husband. Her father-in-law is dead as well, and it's just kind of her mother-in-law, her, and her sister-in-law, all widowed, kind of hopeless and helpless in the world. Choosing against her own self-interest, Ruth goes with her mother-in-law, moves back to Israel, and tries to make a life there by begging in the fields. Finds the kinsman redeemer, this, this relative who, because of the, the tradition, has the opportunity to, to step in and, and marry Ruth and take care of their family. And Ruth initiates actually proposing marriage to him in this very countercultural, very remarkable kind of way. And it ends up leading to ultimately a, a happy ending. They get married, they have kids, it's kind of fairy tale esque. And there's a lot to unpack in there. I mean, as you, as you listen to Sarah read, and I do, did have to, you know, Sarah was giving me a hard time about giving her the passage with all the really difficult names. And it is kind of hard. There's just names in there that you're like, why would an H go at that place in the word? I don't understand. But, you know, you did a good job. Um, But the real kind of punch, there's a lot to unpack in that last chapter, but the real punch of it is in the surprise ending, the part that actually seems kind of most mundane and boring, the, the genealogy. 
Because as we read the genealogy, there's lots of names that you may or may not recognize. And we kind of get down to Boaz, who's one of the stars of the story. And Boaz has a kid named Obed, who, okay, Obed. Obed has, Obed has a kid named Jesse, fine. Jesse has a kid named David. Now that's interesting, and it kind of ends there. Now if you're not familiar, David is kind of a thing in the Bible. Um, his name is, well... He, as a person, you might be familiar with the story of David and Goliath, if, if nothing else. Even if you're not familiar with the Bible, you've probably heard the story of, of the shepherd boy who took a, a few stones and used one of them to down a giant. But that's just the beginning. Ultimately, David becomes the, the king of Israel. And not just the king, but he embodies what it means to be a king who leads the nation of Israel well that David's name becomes synonymous with God's favor, with what it looks like to be God's people in the world. So when people think about King David, not only do they think about the historical figure of David, but they think about what it means to actually be Israel. It, it brings pride. It brings a sense of purpose. Yes, David represents what it means to be God's people in the world, to represent God well. It's kind of like... Um, for maybe many of us, when, when we think about a figure like JFK in our history. So JFK is not just a figure. He kind of embodies something bigger. Whether you like or not the actual historical figure of JFK, because obviously history is, is often unkind to people as you go back and you look through, you're like, oh, there's lots of skeletons there. And the same is true for David. That if you go back and you look at David's closet, there's some pretty remarkable skeletons in that closet. But regardless, he is synonymous with what it means to be God's people in the world is Israel. And in the same way, for, when you think about JFK, it's kind of bigger than just this guy and what he did. It's kind of this idea that he represent, represented. The youngest president ever with these ideas of what it looks like to kind of move the nation forward in, in areas like, uh, well, eventually the civil rights movement the space race, and being involved in things like the Peace Corps. There's kind of this idea of uh, idealism and, and optimism that comes with JFK. So much so that, you know, uh, you've probably heard the, the term Camelot used. I, I think uh, his wife, Jackie, actually coined that phrase. But to represent this idyllic image of what the, the America that John F. Kennedy wanted to build, this, this Camelot, this fairy tale land, but this place that's always kind of moving forward growing. It's optimism and, and energy. All that stuff gets associated with the name JFK. And it's kind of like that with David. That this is what Israel aspired to be at its best, even though it often failed to live up to that. And so Ruth's story is really the story of David. It's the story of how God, in the midst of this really broken and chaotic and messed up situation, takes an outsider, a pagan woman, who really had every reason to choose self-preservation, but instead chose to move with compassion towards her mother-in-law. And the result is God's redemptive plan coming to fulfillment. That God works through this courageous young woman to bring about his purposes in the world in ways that she would have never imagined. But it's even bigger than David. Because when Scripture talks about David, it kind of pans out. David is not just symbolic of Israel, but David represents 
the coming Savior, the coming King who God will ultimately use to rescue the whole world. So Scripture uses David um, a lot for this kind of meta picture of the Savior God will one day bring. The, the Messiah is the name often used for this, this ruler. We see this in passages like Psalm chapter 89, verses 3 to 4. Uh, the p- scripture will be up here on the screen. I'm going to read it for you. The psalmist writes, The Lord said, I have made a covenant with David, my chosen servant. I have sworn this oath to him. I will establish your descendants as kings forever. They will sit on your throne from now until eternity. There was this understanding for the people of Israel that the line of David was going to continue forever. And that someone through that line would ultimately be the one that God uses to set up his people, his kingdom on earth forever. And so for generations after David, there was a waiting, a longing for the day when God would establish that king, when he would establish the people of Israel through this king he was bringing. If you read the gospel accounts, the biographies of Jesus that we find in the New Testament, they draw a straight line from David to Jesus. They make no bones about pulling out this this image of this king who's coming to establish God's people on earth and pointing it right to Jesus. Matthew is the first one we come to, and it starts, as does Luke, with a genealogy. So kind of those boring list of names at the end of Ruth, it's like three times that long in the beginning of Matthew. If you're doing a Renew reading, you, that's the first thing you would have read, which is a little, can be a little kind of uh, discouraging when you're like, all right, I'm going to read through the New Testament, and the first thing you get is a list of like 50 names. I, but that's actually really purposeful. Both Matthew and Luke do this because in the midst of that genealogy, they're pointing out the line. Ruth shows up in that genealogy. And what they're doing is they're drawing our attention to the fact that Jesus is a direct descendant from David. Mark, throughout his biography, often will have Jesus referenced as the son of David. And then in John's biography, it's said about as explicitly as you can. He Uh, John records a group of people arguing over whether or not Jesus is the Messiah, the the king who's supposed to come. And as they're arguing, they're talking about what is it that's going to qualify someone as the Messiah. And one of them says this in John chapter 7, verse 42. He says, For the scriptures clearly state that the Messiah will be born of the royal line of David in Bethlehem, the village where King David was born. So as they're talking about the criteria for what makes a Messiah a Messiah, or the Messiah, well, they have to be born in Bethlehem. Now, if you're familiar at all with the story, even if you don't know the Bible, maybe you've sung some Christmas carols, that name Bethlehem might ring in your ear a little bit, right? Because this is the birthplace of Jesus. The Gospels are all about drawing our attention to recognizing that Jesus is the one who has come in the line of David. That's the surprise ending. And it goes all the way back to Ruth. What began as a chaotic mess ends in the salvation of the world. Ruth's life started out tragic. But in the midst of that, her, her, her initial decision, that, that one decision to choose away from self-preservation and towards self-giving love and compassion toward her mother-in-law, move the story away from tragedy 
and towards this heroic tale through which the Savior would be born. I mean, you and I are able to know our Creator, to live in relationship with God, to become fully who we were created to be because a pagan Moabite woman centuries ago chose against self-preservation and toward self-giving love. That one simple act that could have very well led to her death led to our salvation. Kind of remarkable. No one would have ever seen that coming. But this is what God tends to do. In big ways like that, and even smaller ways, constantly bringing life in the midst of things that feel like death, that feel tragic. This is what God does. This is who God is. I was trying to think of an illustration for this, and there's none that came to mind as that, that fit it as well as the story of Rosa Parks. Which, again, I'm sure that you are familiar with this if you remember your eighth grade social studies course at all. Um, Rosa Parks is the woman who kind of sparked the civil rights movement because she refused to give up her seat on a bus. After a long day of work, uh, as she's kind of moving to her stop, going to her stop, um, a white man came on, the bus driver asked her to move, and she simply said no. It's a small act, but it sparked a revolution. In 2015, there was a a Washington Post author who was kind of reflecting on this and talking about some of the common myths about the Rosa Parks story. And one of the the myths he was addressing was uh, the myth that she just didn't want to get up because she was tired, that she'd worked a long day and she didn't feel like getting up, and so she was tired, and that's really what it was. So it was just kind of happenstance. And he writes this, again, in the Post in 2015. He says, Parks sought to set the record straight in regard to this myth. She said, people always say that I didn't give up my seat because I was tired, but that isn't true. I was not tired physically or no more tired than I was at the end of a working day. No, the only tired I was was tired of giving in. She later said that she couldn't have lived with herself if she had given in and stood up. To attribute her action to fatigue would have pointed to weakness rather than to the source of her strength. She insisted that the power to love her enemies came from God. God has always given me the strength to say what is right. No one would have ever guessed that Rosa Parks' decision in that moment to simply say no, that her willingness to trust God with her life, I mean, literally with her life. I mean, you read the history books, and it would not have been shocking had that gone really badly for her. But something about her trust in God, as herself as someone made to reflect God's image, led her to say, no, I won't move. Which subsequently led her to be arrested. Which then led to the beginning of the Montgomery bus boycotts and the civil rights movement as we know it. It was in the mess, the chaos of that situation, of that, that social situation, that the beauty of the civil rights movement was able to emerge. 
This is what God does. He steps into the chaos and he brings out order. He steps into death and he brings out life. This is what God is like. And so Ruth's self-giving love, her her move away from self-preservation to self-giving love, moves us to Jesus, who shows us ultimately what God is like, who God is, as he gives the ultimate love, the ulti- does the ultimate act of self-giving love for us on the cross. In the cross, we see the most gruesome, chaotic mess that human ingenuity can contrive. We see the, the, the messiness of evil. But we also see how God is able to bring resurrection life out the other side. That when God raises Jesus from the dead, he points to what he's been doing all along and what he's inviting us into. Even way back with Ruth, God was working to bring life from death, order from chaos, hope in the midst of despair. And in Jesus, that way is open to all of us. Paul, uh, the early church leader, reflects on this in his uh, letter to the, the church in Coloss. In, uh, it's, it's the letter to the Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, verse 20 to 21. Paul writes, and this is kind of a hymn. You could almost imagine Paul singing it. He says, For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ, and through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. This includes you who were once far away from God. And he goes on, but the idea here is that while the, the Israelites were longing for the, the, line, the, the Messiah, the, the king who would come in the way of David to establish Israel, God's people on the earth, what we discover, kind of the surprise ending to the surprise ending, is that not only has Jesus come to rescue Israel, but he's come to rescue all of us. That what began with a Moabitess, the person who's furthest away from God in the Israel mind, ends with God reconciling all of us, even those of us who are far away from God. Especially those of us who are far away from God. We get welcomed in. This is what God has been up to. It's what he's always been up to. And because we see that God, this is what God does, we're able to live lives of trust. Lives that, even when we face things that feel like a chaotic mess, we're somehow trusting and hoping that God is at work behind the scenes to do what God is always doing. Bringing life and hope. If we'll trust him. I love what author and uh, speaker Leonard Sweet says. He writes, You can't know the future, but if you know the one who holds the world and the future in his hands, you need not fear the future. The more you know Christ, the more you secure your future, and your future is secure. So in some ways, the surprise ending of Ruth is that We don't have to be afraid. That yes, sometimes life can be chaotic and messy. 
But in Christ, we see ultimately that God is at work to bring redemption. And as we put our trust in him, we trust that God is at work even in the midst of our messy situations to bring life. Even in the things that feel most challenging, most fearful, that God is at work to bring life and hope for us and for others. So, a couple of things to think about as we kind of draw to a close, and then I want to do something together. There's a couple of different things we're going to think about at the end of this sermon. Um, I want to lead us to a time of prayer, and then uh, Pastor Andrew and Crystal Skiltis are going to come forward and uh, have a conversation with us a little bit as we look to the summer about some of our our finances. But before we go to either of those, um, a couple of thoughts about what we can take away from this. And there might be other things. When we've read through the book, there might be things that you're taking away that you're like, yeah, this is very different than what Tim is saying, and that's great. But a couple of thoughts that I have. Number one, if you feel like your life is a mess right now, maybe not the whole thing, but maybe there are aspects of it that feel messy, what, what might you do? There's probably a bunch of things, two things I would encourage you strongly. Number one, don't go it alone. We need people in our lives who can remind us that God is in the practice of bringing life from death. Sometimes when we're in the midst of our mess, we need people. If you read the story of Ruth and Naomi, they're kind of constantly reminding one another of hope. Naomi plays this role, this kind of sage-like role of helping point Ruth towards trust, towards moving forward in hope. And we need people in our lives who can do that. When life feels like it's a mess and we can't see the way forward, we need people who can walk beside us and go, you can trust. God is with you. I know it looks dark now, but there's reason to be hopeful, to expect that God will do something, even though you can't see how this is going to work out. So that might be the small group that you're in, the community group that you're in, it might be a, a group that you're meeting with the, navig- uh, with the navigating, or I'm sorry, with the wayfaring groups. It might be unrelated to any of that. It might just be someone you know here, someone you know outside of here, but someone who can continue to encourage you to trust that God is at work, even when it doesn't seem to be true. And then the second thing I would say to do that I think we see in Ruth is to do whatever it is that you can find to do that moves you towards Jesus' example of self-giving love, that moves you away from self-preservation and towards other-centered love. It might not be a big thing, but in the midst of your chaos and mess and the stuff you can't see, you can't see how it's going to work out, there's probably something that you can know to do right now that will demonstrate the love of Christ in the lives of someone around you. Whatever that is, do it. I'm not saying that will solve all the problems, but we do know this is the character of the God who is at work in bringing life from death. And so if we choose to live in that self-giving love as opposed to self-preservation, we know that we're in the way of Jesus. So whatever it is that you can do, do that. And we trust that God will be at work. Who knows what that one thing might set in motion? But do what you know to do that's right in front of you.
And then finally, if you're sitting there and you're like, yeah, my life's cool. Like, I don't, nothing particularly messy. Um, first of all, congratulations. Um, <laughs> secondly, if that's you, I would guarantee you that if you know another person, you probably know someone whose life is not like that, whose life feels a bit like a chaotic mess right now. So in this moment where you feel particularly like that's not you, choose to be a light to someone whose life is a mess. If you are someone who loves relationships and hanging out and having long conversations, invite them over for dinner or for a cup of coffee or go on a walk or something, right? Like spend some time with them. If you're someone who doesn't know how to do that or feels completely paralyzed by the idea of initiating that type of interaction with someone, fine. Make them a meal. They might not need a meal. It's okay. Because the point isn't the eating. The point is that while you're making the meal for them, you're thinking about them, you're praying for them, and then you have something to offer as a tangible expression of God's love for them. And make it something they can freeze. So if they have stuff to eat, you don't have to worry about it, right? Or write them a card. Whatever it is, take a moment to get out of yourself, to get out of your own life, out of your own pursuit of comfort, and move towards another in a way that tells them that you love them, that God loves them, that there's a reason to hold on and hope. Because God is always bringing light in the midst of darkness, hope in the midst of despair, life from death. This is what God does. Sometimes it takes longer than we want. But this is the character of God. As we end our, our time this morning, I wanted to um, take a moment to, to pray. Uh, you undoubtedly have been at least some, somewhat aware of the events of Friday where there was uh, the 20 our 22nd school shooting of the year um, in Texas. And I was thinking about this since Friday, obviously. But even more than that, I, I've had the opportunity to be on a, a safety and security council for our school district that my kids are in. The principal invited a couple of parents, uh, some police officers, some administrators to be on this council that has met a couple of times to talk through, like, what are we doing to ensure that our students are safe? And it's been really interesting conversation and really important and good conversation. But it's got me thinking, and particularly as we come out of this Friday, where again, here we are. Like, what the heck can any of us, what can we do? In some ways, it's easy to feel helpless when you look at the scope of this. 22 this year. I was talking to my daughter, and kids, I, I don't know, for those of you who have kids or are kids, um, there's kind of a sense of resignation of like, yeah, this is what life is like. School shootings happen. It's not a question of should they or will they. It's just when will it happen. And I guess for me, as I've been thinking about this, I think there are two tendencies that I see in myself and 
see around us that I feel like come up a lot when we have these conversations. And that's, one is, of course, a move towards safety, which is good and right, right? Like, how do we make sure that we do everything we can to not let this happen again? How do we put safety measures in place? All of that's good. It needs to happen. Like I said, I'm, I'm on this council. It's a good thing. Um, though at some level, it's idealistic, right? Let's solve every problem before we even know what it is. Let's it's kind of impossible to ensure nothing will ever actually happen. We can do our best to take safety measures, but in the end, can we really? The other thing that I think comes up in these conversations is, that, again, what I see in my daughter, this sense of like cynicism, this resignation of, like, well, this is just how it is. Nothing can change. And as I've been thinking and praying about what it looks like for us as a community to respond in moments like this, I, I feel like neither of those are very, very good places to land, ultimately. Again, safety is important. We need to care about that. But we need to go beyond that. I don't want us to be primarily concerned with keeping our kids safe. I want us to be primarily concerned in helping our kids live full lives where they're able to live as peacemakers, not people who are primarily focused on self-preservation and how do I make it through well, but how am I making choices that are changing the places that I'm in? How is my life as a student changing the narrative at my school? What impact are our kids having because they're increasingly becoming people who reflect the character of Christ in their lives. How might our kids become peacemakers? And I know that sounds like a lot to, to put on kids. And again, I'm not saying it's any one thing entirely. But I do think that our kids are capable of living in such a way as to make these environments increasingly prohibitive towards that kind of evil flourishing. And I think as followers of Christ, that is what we want to do in our community, is raise up people who are peacemakers, who live out the way of Jesus in such a way that it changes the culture of their schools. And so I want to take a moment this morning and just pray for our kids, and also for our teachers. Now, I know, unfortunately, there, there are other places where these kinds of things have happened, but obviously it's most kind of, the most obvious and heinous example are in our schools. And so, what I'd love to do, and I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do, and then I'm going to ask you to do it, just to prep you. I'm going to ask our, our teens, our, our kids who are here, to stand, along with our teachers, so that we can kind of see them. And then for those who are comfortable, I'm going to invite you to kind of come around them. And we're just going to take a moment to pray for them. And yes, pray for their protection, absolutely. But also pray that God's Spirit would be at work in them to help them become peacemakers in their schools. People whose very character is such a light. Jesus talked about being a light in the world. 
people whose very character is such that it drives darkness out. This is what I'd love for us to see happen in their lives and, heck, in our lives as adults as well. I believe this is what it means to follow Jesus together. So I'd love to invite the kids and teachers to stand, if you would. And then if you are near them, uh, now that you've kind of got a visual, you're around them, um, I invite the rest of us to stand and kind of move around these individuals. If you're comfortable, kind of you can place a hand on a shoulder. And I'm just going to invite you, we're just going to take a minute and, and you just pray. So not everyone kind of needs to pray, just kind of pray out. Um, we'll just take a minute or two just pray however you feel led to pray for the people you're around. Um, and then I'll lead us in a time of prayer at the end. Father, um, I think about the, the prayer of St. Francis. Lord, make us instruments of your peace. And for our, for our teens, for our kids, for our teachers, Lord, would you empower them to be instruments of peace in the schools, in their neighborhoods, with their friends? Would they increasingly become like Jesus. That their words, their actions would reflect the remarkable, self-giving love of Christ. And that in so doing, the light would drive out the darkness. That they would be agents of light in dark places. Bringing hope. and Bringing about your redemptive purposes in their lives and in their schools and in their friends' lives. And Lord, it's clear from Ruth, we don't always know how these little acts of faithfulness will ultimately go. But we trust that you are at work and doing way more than we could ever ask or imagine. So that we pray you would do that in the lives of our students and our teachers and in the lives of those around them. And Lord, we do pray for their protection. We pray for wisdom for decision makers we pray for, um, yeah, safety. We just pray for protection, Lord. 
but we pray for more than protection. We pray that these people would be empowered to live lives that transform those around them. And we ask this in hope and trust because of Jesus. Amen.